Wow, thank you for coming tonight. I'm, I didn't know if it was going to be eight people or 80, so thank you for coming. We're really thrilled. I'm Don Guthrie. Um, Holly and I have been here at Hunter's Glen for about eight months, almost nine now. <laughs> Security, please, a heckler, a heckler over here. So. <laughs> um, we came here looking for a Bible-believing, energetic, happy church. It's exactly what we found, and so we've been thrilled to be a part of it for these months. Thank we you for. We found a little more than that. That is true. <laughs> Let's begin with prayer tonight. Lord Jesus, uh, huge and high and holy and good and wise, eternal, worthy of men's love and affection and trust. Your wisdom is astounding to us, and so we stand underneath it like in the shade of a huge oak tree. We are cooled by it and comforted by it. You are wise. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this evening, for this church. Come, Holy Spirit of God, and fill this place in our hearts. You who wrote the scripture in the lives of people, now come and help us to hear it. We trust you. We love you. In your name. Amen. Several years ago at a youth camp with the kids at First Baptist Church in San Antonio. Youth camp for me is the brightest kind of minds, time away to think about spiritual things. I absolutely loved youth camp. Anyway, the Lord led me to teach a simple summary of the Bible. The eight-story Bible. That's what we called it for those kids. Eight stories, eight meta-narratives. If you can get them in your mind and keep them in your mind, you can see how the whole scripture, all 66 books, are woven together out of those eight stories. They, they really It's not as complicated as it looks. 66 books is a lot. Different authors, different themes coming in and out of it. Different kinds of literature, some poetry, some narrative it's it, at times it seems daunting but it really isn't if you step back 30,000 feet from the scripture it begins to emerge these amazing stories what God was saying through that blessed book once they are learned these eight stories become a spine or a framework upon which a larger understanding of the scripture can be constructed and um, for most of those teenagers that year at camp they had grown up in church they, like a lot of us, have heard the stories. They heard the Goliath story. They heard the Jonah and the whale story. They heard Jesus and the little children's story. But somehow they'd never been able to put it all back together. It was just still a collection of all these stories and insights about God. There was no sense of the whole. There was no sense. So it was new to them for me to give them an overview. I can still see them. This is years ago eagerly scratching notes on papers, hands raised, asking questions for clarifications later. For five days, those highly motivated students began to see that there was a whole picture emerging out of this good book. I have no doubt for some of them it was life-changing and have heard from them years later that that year at camp, it began to make sense to them. It couldn't have come at a better time. In 2007, Christopher Hitchens published a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. 
I doubt that any of those teenagers had read that book then and maybe not since. But all, even so, they were already experiencing, and more now, the animosity that is rising in the world toward religion. There is a sense that religion is suspect now. It really is the danger. It really is the one that's harming us. It's dividing us. It's causing all of these difficulties. There's a new old bias, anger, and opposition toward the idea of God, a personal God, his law, his book. And some people honestly feel like they're doing a child a favor. If I can erase those ideas and just let him think through these things on his own, I have really helped him. Those kids had experienced and more by now, but we have too. People calling us haters because for no other reason than we were making clear what this book says. All of a sudden, it shifted on us. You say what this book says, and somebody says, well, that's the most intolerant thing I've ever heard. So the, the, the mood has shifted, and it's just in the declaration of scriptural truth, we begin to make our identity known. Uh, I've, I've told this story before. Maybe you've heard it. I was speaking to a homosexual man one day, and he and I were talking about views on homosexuality and a creator God and gender and those things. And I finally said, you know, I'm not sure we're disagreeing on homosexuality. I think what we really disagree on is scripture and whether or not it is optional in the mind of a believer or whether this really is uh, God-given truth and therefore to be lived by us with reverence. It seemed to really clarify for him. He said, I think, I think you're right. I, I don't think we're disagreeing about homosexuality. We're really disagreeing about the nature, the authority, the sufficiency, the goodness uh, of Scripture. All the more reason, then, that we be careful to know this book that we say we love. All the more reason for us to be careful that we have a grip on this book, and that we actually know what it is saying, not just what we are making it say. You know how easy that is. You take a scripture out of context, you put it up on your refrigerator, and before long it means almost anything you want it to mean. But read in a larger context, there's a, there's a, a story that it has to fit into. There's this larger truth that God's always intended for people to have, and so it's important for us who are students of scripture and love it to make sure that we uh, get hold of that. Tonight, I'm grateful again to tell, tell these ideas done it several times over the years. and um, Always found people say, oh, I just never saw it that way. So thank you for coming and uh, giving me your mind for these three hours, this week, next week, and the week following. All religions at some level attempt to answer four basic questions. Um, religion doesn't pose these questions actually life poses the questions but all religions whether christianity buddhism islam whatever the religion is attempts to answer for one of four, of four questions um, one is uh, by the way one of the proofs of god is that the idea of god so resiliently surfaces in every human culture if it was just some sort of construct, then it would go away after a while. But that's not what's really, human history has done a, a really strange thing. No matter who you are or where you live or what kind of economic powers you have, 
people all over the world through all of time have tried to answer some very basic questions. They're just down deep inside of us. Um, who is God? And for Christians, that means who is Christ? Because we believe Christ is in, revealed. He's that God. What is man? What is the condition of humanity? How can we be saved? How can it get better? Who is God? Who are we? How can we be saved? How can it be better? And fourth, and that's the, our question for tonight, by what authority? By, how do you know what you believe to be true? In, on the highway, we know who has the authority. He's the one with the red, white, and blue rotating lights. You know who is the authority in a highway. But in religion, um, in eternal, spiritual, invisible matters, how do you know what is true? How do you know if it's invisible, and it is, how do you have with any certainty do you get hold of that and know that you just didn't make that up? You just didn't think it up in your own mind. How, what, what is our authority? Everybody, without any sense of being contradicted, I can tell you for Jesus, the answer to that question always was Scripture. Always. The, the holiest man who ever lived, he never turned to his own experience, his own reason. If you challenge Jesus about how do you know something to be true, without fail, he is going to reference the Old Testament. He didn't have a New Testament. But for Jesus, the answer to how we know what we know is um, Scripture. Um, he, he does it so many times, you, you almost pass over it because it is so obvious. He'll say to the Pharisees, have, have you guys never read this scripture? Which is sort of humorous because they've read it a thousand times. They've just never really understood. He'd say, did you never read that? He'll say in his own temptation, the devil will say, what about this? And he'll say, no, Deuteronomy says this. Uh, in almost every way he could, Jesus said, the way you know what you know about an invisible God is through Scripture, and that uh, by, uh, by the design of God. Um, Jesus was just being faithful to the Jewish religion here. I think sometimes how dear it is um, to think about him, Mary, and Joseph taking Jesus to synagogue, and him, like any little Jewish boy, he's memorizing these texts. He's memorizing. None of them had a Bible. None of them had a Bible. What they knew of God's Word, they knew because they memorized it and carried it in their head. And how often he would, he, they would say, what about divorce? And he would say, do you remember what it says in Genesis? And they, they would, almost any subject you brought up, Jesus would quickly go back to what does the Bible say? So again, in terms of authority, it's for Jesus. It, it was scripture. Read with me Joshua 1.8. It's just uh, so many references. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, which is to say in an Old Testament setting, you were to mutter these things. Any of y'all ever memorized scriptures and you were taught to say them out loud? 
uh, topical memory system from the navigators. You were to say these things out loud. That's a very Old Testament principle because not only are you using your mind, but you're using your lips and you're using your ears. You are hearing it. It's being reinforced three different ways. So the, this book of law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate. The scripture word is murmur. You shall murmur it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. So the Old Testament says, somehow God has decided to reveal himself in a written document. Now, that's a very statement of faith for us. I mean, there's nothing obvious or... Uh, imperative about that. God could have revealed himself a thousand different ways and actually has. But Jesus believed that the Father decided, just as he decided to reveal himself through the history of Israel, he decided to reveal himself through a book that they would write, he would protect, and disseminate into every generation. Read Second Peter. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. It's just not up to us to decide what it means. It means what it means. You, you, it's not free for us to evolve past these things and say, well, now we think this means this. That's not true to the Scripture. No prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, that speaks to its... Um, the fact that it's inspired speaks to the way the Holy Spirit would move in men's hearts. And we don't necessarily, some of you may, but I don't necessarily believe in a dictation theory, which would mean that God just sort of removes the humanity and he just becomes an instrument. The Holy Spirit just so fills him that he just writes without any cognition of what he's writing. I don't believe that. I believe their humanity was still fully functioning. Paul was Paul when he was writing this. Moses was Moses. And yet the Holy Spirit was so inspiring him and having taught him, he was guiding it. So he wrote what God wanted to be written. It's, a, it's an act of faith on our part, everybody, to, to say that that's what we believe about the Scripture. But it's an act of faith that's very consistent with our Lord. That's the point. We just didn't take that out of broadcloth. That's very much how Jesus lived his life. It is guided by Scripture. I have come to know this invisible and, and good God. Okay, look at 2 Timothy. All Scripture is inspired by God. Pause here for a second. Hey, guys, there's some notes up here you may need. Uh, let me get you some of those. Glad y'all are here. All, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable then. It, so th there's, that, there's that word. He means in the words of J.I. Packer, you'll see that quote next. Inspiration is that supernatural providential influence of God's Holy Spirit upon the human authors, which caused them to write what he wished to be written for the communication of truth to others, that God was there when this blessed book was being written. Um, so 
it makes this remarkable claim that all Scripture is inspired. It's profitable to teach you what you should, profitable for teaching, for reproof. It tells you when you got off the road, for correction, tells you how to get back up on the road, and for instruction, righteous, how to keep you on the road. So the idea here is that it is just what you need for the living of this life of faith is the scripture in, in all of its fullness, okay? We know to ask that, so say you come into conflict with science, and we do. We, we come into conflict with a secular science begins to teach certain things about human value or about the end of all things. We feel the tension of that. We don't want to be anti-science. We don't want to be anti-culture either. We know to ask that this is our priority. So we go back and say, well, what did God intend to communicate? Was he teaching us science in this book? Or was he saying something higher? Um, when we say it is a perfect book, we, say, we mean it is perfect for what God intended it to accomplish. It is perfect for what God intended to accomplish that if you will use it, it will shoot straight to your heart and it will guide you into righteousness. Everybody, you have a sword that is amazing. And generations of people have proven it to be true. Uh, you've seen those pictures of those teenagers in China when you give them a page of the scripture and they weep to finally have a page. And you have 87 copies of the Bible in your house. You have 187, some of you. You just have it everywhere. It is an, it's an amazing thing that you, you have been given. Um, now all this sounds foreign in a generation of people who, given the question of authority, culture has said, authority is your own mind. It's what is true to you, what seems consistent with you, with your reason. It's either logic or reason or preference. In other words, Authority in, a, in the generational context is to say, I look inside me. If something is true and integrates me and I feel better about myself and helps me live life, then it's true. The, the reference in this secular world is almost entirely internal. Um, we're doing the complete flip of that. It's not internal at all. As a matter of fact, some of these things you read are a great offense to you. You will hate what you read. It will insult you and make you angry. So the scripture is saying, no, no, no. Your authority is external and above you. It is, uh, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills. From whence cometh my help, says the song. That's the, that's the moment of transformation for, the hum, for humanity. I will, it's not about me. Do you see? I will lift up my eyes and I will begin to ask for truth from a different source than what is confirmed in my own heart or my own preferences. So uh, culture is not Christianity. You, you got that? As a matter of fact, the, the, it, 
the absolute opposition of culture, if you really get down to who, what we believe, it is pretty insulting to some people in our culture. We're saying it really, what you feel in your heart is really not ultimate. It is not ultimate. What God, that's why the, the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. They were making a proclamation about what this God that everybody knows is out there. Everybody knows he's there at some level of their conscience. Everybody knows that the world is too complicated and beautiful and ordered to have happened by chance. They know that at some level. And so that, that sense they... Here's the Christian revelation. That God is Schaefer's word. He is there and he is not silent. He has not been silent. He's told you. He's spoken, which is just profound, profound. This great God has spoken into the world. And so well, we're sort of laying the foundations of the, the Christian faith. So, so um, let's begin. Story number one is called Beginnings. Uh, it is found entirely in the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. So you could go home and read the first of our eight stories tonight before you went to bed. You could scan it. As a matter of fact, you should. Have you found the, the benefit of just scanning the Bible now? Where you don't so much read the words as you just step back and flip through those pages so that you see what those 11 where those 11 pages are going to take you the first story is called beginnings it reveals the beginning of the universe the cosmos in the beginning god created the heaven and earth uh, genesis 1 1 it the beginning of the human race God created man in, God, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, made them male and female. Look this way, everybody. That is obviously not normal history. In other words, there were no eyewitnesses to those events. By its very fact, nobody could have been there for that to happen. So we believe, or I do, and most conservative scholars agree, that this grand explanation for the prehistory is what we would call that. It came to Moses on the mountain, and then he later then would write the Pentateuch, the five, and Genesis would be included. So this grand explanation for what happened of creation came from God to his son Moses, and it's not no eyewitnesses. Um, without question, we know that Moses wrote the first five books, but um, there's so much argument about these things, and you do know, don't you, that all argument except this one is speculation in theory, right? It's the theory of evolution, atheistic evolution, uh, theistic evolution, the gap theory. Whatever you want to say, you still must speculate back into those myths of how did this all start? 
what was the purpose? What was the gracious, beautiful, working purpose that began all this? And so the Bible says there was God. It was, it was God. Anybody feel a sense of relief here? It feels wonderful to say the, the beauty of a world with alligators and bumblebees and snakes and gorillas and sperm whale. The, the beauty of flowers that live and die in a rainforest and no eye ever sees them. Ever sees them. They exist only in explosion of color, uh, smells, the taste of chocolate, the feel of a baby, the sound of music, a, 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 a wind on your skin on a spring day, rain, glaciers, everybody. What a, a wonderful, beautiful world God made. And so the scripture entertains to say, what was the motive? It was God. He said, let there be light. And there was light, let there be land, and there was land. He said, let's make people in our image. And, and they argue, we argue a lot about what image may mean. The image of God, what does that mean? Most people finally get close to, it means some sort of correspondence of our nature that allows us to have a friendship with him, to know him and be known. It means the ability to imagine. A, a dog doesn't imagine, he doesn't dream, he doesn't hope you do you can imagine something better there's some by the way the i think if i wasn't a christian i would have to be a christian because there is no other real explanation for the uniqueness of the human race what has happened than some sort of infinitely good creation has caused it and so beginnings uh, start that story for us um the real value of the story begins to teach us some categorical ideas. And I can't emphasize this too much. Get these categories in your mind. Begin to build your theology off of these. He'll give you the file system. Begin to pull life together under these. Number one, God. In beginnings, he begins to reveal a God. There's only one. He is singular, not plural. There are not many gods. Every nation doesn't have a different God. There's not multiple explanations for all things, everybody. There's a unity of truth in all of its meanings. That God is personal. He's not a force. He's a face. He is kind and joyful and holy Utterly serious about sin and contamination. What, a, what, a, what an amazing thing just happened. You just looked at this beautiful world and he said, no, 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 don't just look at the world. Look up, there is someone there who has purposes and character and a holy regard for sin. It introduces you to the idea of God. He's the creator Created the human race, made in his image. We are not animals. Um, C.S. Lewis used to say, you take care of your dog, but he is never going to take care of you. Not in the way that 
he, so, you know, ethical treatment of animals notwithstanding, he's not going to do it. You are the human. You're the man. You're the woman. And are in a different place. In, in that way, this is almost too artistic. To, so, angels are all spiritual and not body. Animals are all body and no spirit. Humans are only that remarkable creation that are the combination of both. We have both bodies and spirit. And he says, and the only way to handle your body is to make sure your spirit is first. So it's a, it's a duality of creation, but not a duality of priority. Spirit is first. Seek ye first, seek ye first the kingdom of God. So what he's saying, everybody, in, in just almost unspeakable articulate language, is that humans are this unique creation like God in, our, in spirit, like animals in our body. And that he intended us to live both ways. Wants us to live very human bodies, physical bodies, and yet be ruled by, animated by the Spirit. And so uh, that is. Is that, is that seven o'clock? Somebody tell him to be quiet. Um, Genesis then tells the beginning of sin. Absolutely huge concept. The present generation feels uncomfortable talking about the failure of mankind. To them it seems pessimistic. I've had more than a hundred people tell me, I don't like hellfire and damnation preaching. I don't like that. And I'll say, well, your problem is not with me, it is with the Bible. Because the story is of the unspeakable failure of the human race. In the smallest little rule, do not eat that apple. You do not need that apple. I've provided everything for you. There's something in the human heart that says, you can't make me. And so she did, and it all collapses. Now, everybody, please tell me what shepherd thinks in those kind of theological terms to write that story. Moses is a shepherd. Nobody could write that story. In its, its beauty, in its pathos, it's, it is so true, it's unspeakable that the human race shook its fist at God and said, you can't make me. So you, you move through Cain and Abel. Cain doesn't like his brother, so he kills him. Uh, Noah, Noah the early preacher, says, everybody, the real God won't stand for this. He will react Everybody says, you are a fool. And so the rain comes. In ways I really, it's hard to even fathom the beauty of this story. God, man, sin, judgment. The righteous response of a God to the sin of mankind. Um, when I first came to Christ, I realized how profoundly helpful these ideas were. It explained... Those categories explained what I had been feeling all my life. Um, as a teenage boy, I, would, I didn't have these words, but I would say, something is broken here. 
Now, I experienced it as shame, but something is broken in me that I am not good enough somehow. But somehow to have him say, no, 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 something is broken everywhere. Uh, the, this, this phenomenal book. And in that judgment that he will not forestall, in that judgment that he will not give over, then the larger issue is he still loves us. The easiest thing in the world is says, all you be gone. So then, if, if I don't tell you that story, if you don't read Genesis 1 through 11, then nobody understands John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He looked at us in the wreckage that we've made. Of, somebody tell me why we ruin the environment. Because we're humans. Somebody tell me why there's the cruelty of war. Because we're humans. Somebody tell me about divorce or child abuse or pornography or any of the ways that we have spoiled this planet. The scripture says, God, man, sin, judgment. And so all of a sudden you begin to have your first categories. Um, you've heard people talk about total depravity. It's the same word as deprived. Just as a baby that's deprived of oxygen in the womb fails to develop, so now the scripture claims that each of us have been deprived of the spirit, and so we cannot be fully human. You can't, you died, everybody. The whole race died. Do you hear me? The whole race died to its ability to be human because of the main factor that we needed was to be who we are we must have spirit and to the extent that our, our sin sent that away we are deformed creatures so story number one is beginnings where Genesis 1 through 11 who God Adam and Eve Cain and Abel Noah what does it teach God man sin judgment um Go read those pages, please. Um, and then ask yourself, how well do I talk about this? See, that's where we're going to finally go. Not only have you heard what the scripture says, but can you talk about it in an intelligent way with people who don't believe it anymore? Because those very ideas are challenged daily. Is there a God? People say, I'm not sure there is a God. Did he make us? Well, I'm not sure he made us. I think evolution made us. Do we sin? No, I just think that's personal choice. I think it's wrong for you to judge other people's sins. And so these are daily challenged. And only the church has the ability to say, no, that's really not the truth. The truth is higher and better, more noble. And so can you not only understand them, but can you talk about them? Story number two. Story number two is also in Genesis, Genesis 12 through 50. See, you're a fourth through and you're just in one chapter of the Bible, and one book of the Bible. You're almost through. So um, the name of this story is God chooses a place and a people. So go to the what we call the fertile crescent. 
um, in Ur of the Chaldees, Iraq, um, modern-day Iraq. Uh, um, then the Bible begins to narrate this amazing story of God intersecting the life of a man named Abram. There, there seems to have been some religious interests. They had other idols. The, the whole family shared it. Um, but God begins to choose that family as a way of revealing himself. Now look this way. The heavens declare the glory of God, says Psalm 19. So in some sense, God has always been shouting to every person, his nature, his, his presence. He's always been saying that. But in a surprise move, God decides to take that up a notch and now to reveal himself, and this is what we call progressive revelation, it begins to change, deepen, clarify from creation and from the early parts of that. Now he begins to choose a nation. Uh, the nation that he, through whom he's going to reveal himself and his character to the world. Chooses Israel, teaches them his word, and then expects the whole world to be blessed through them. Around 2100 B.C., the Bible says God called a man. Look at Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. Um, he didn't even know where he was going. He knew his... By the way, everybody, doesn't this sound like walking by the Spirit? He does not know where he's going. He knows the God who will guide him. And God says, I will get you there. So in this remarkable metaphor for faith, he says to an invisible but communicating God, I will do what you're asking me to do. I will, I, I will live in um, cooperation with you. I, I will stop referencing my own desires, my own choices, my own logic, my own humanity. I will now begin moving back toward that restoration of a man walking with God and I will do what you are wanting me to do. And so Abram then responds that way. Years later, um, he is led into Canaan. So Ur the Chaldees, uh, up to this area, and then finally over into Canaan, which God said is where he would finally lead him. Um, at that point, and by the way, it takes a lot of time, many years. God's in no rush to do this. Gives him the promise of a son. He is childless, at least from his true wife, his heritage wife. He doesn't have a, a baby. And God says, I will give you a son. And then Genesis 15. He took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said, so that's how it's going to be with you, Abraham. And he believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it as righteousness. Whoa. So often, the second theme of the scripture, God chooses a man, communicates to him, and how does he respond? Through faith. 
he says, I believe you. I believe you. What an amazing thing that is. What an amazing thing for a human to look into an invisible sky and know that he's not seeing nothing. He's seeing really the creator God who has really been communicating to him in love. And Abram says, Okay, I believe you. And God reckoned it or counted it or accounted for it and said, that's what righteousness looks like. For a human context, if you cannot be righteous in all your deeds, and you can't be, if you can't be righteous in all your thoughts, and you can't be, if you can't go back and correct all the mistakes that you've made, and you can't, then what does righteousness look like? It looks like you saying, Okay, I trust you. And Paul will later say that's how a man is saved through faith. He'll quote exactly this same story. It's, it's this man called God and leads him and he, and he believes him. Um, so Abraham, Isaac, two sons, Esau, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. So actually the story gets longer and longer and longer. Let me just uh, give you three specifics out of that. Three specifics. One, God calls men into community. That's up at the top of your page. God calls men into community with himself. Communicates with them faithfully and invites them to trust him. Two, the door into that friendship is faith. It is not your work. It is your trust. I trust you. I will rest my destiny on your goodness. And three, with great patience, and God uses men to rewrite history in a way that communicates his nature to the world. Second story, God chooses a place and a people. People say, are they God's chosen people? You would have to say, absolutely they were. At that point in this history, he has chosen the nation of Israel. Now, we'll get into the New Testament of how that now applies to the church, but they, God chose them and used them to communicate himself to the world. Where is this? Genesis 12 through 50. Who is in it? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12. Joseph. What does it mean? The calling of God, the partnership, the power of faith, and the patience of a faith walk. Now, years later then, one of Jacob's sons' name is Judah. And from that, scholars think he shortened it to the Jews. But the, probably the better is, name is the children of Israel, the children of Isaac, who, the son of promise. Anybody in here believe that that was really God? Anybody believe that that was really God working in history and what he decided to do was choose a nation, teach them lessons? Paul will later say, um, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but inwardly of the Spirit. In Galatians 3, he will say, if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed. Now, what he's doing is saying, 
you may not be Jewish in your physical body, but if you have received Christ by faith, the same seed life that burst up into his life is in you too. You, you're his son. You're, we sing that old father Abraham had many sons. All that. That's a reference to the church of people across all generations who doing the same thing. They look up to an invisible sky in the power of the scripture by the spirit and they say, I trust you. I, I'm going to do what you say. And uh, Okay, so the next week, next week we want to do three stories. The Exodus, then Judges, Prophets, and Kings, and then the Exile and Return. These people... Um, you remember they moved to Egypt in a famine, become slaves to picture our slavery to sin. And so there is this exodus out of Israel through a deliverer named Moses, prophets, priests, and kings. They develop this remarkable society, sin against God, and then are sent into uh, judgment. All of it. Hebrews will say, you guys... He was doing this for you. He was doing this so that you could see the categories that are operating in the lives of all men. And then last week, we'll do Jesus in the Gospels, Acts, and the New Testament mission, and the revelation of things to come. Questions tonight? I know that was fast. Questions or comments? The, the question was not so much about Judah and the Jews. I'm asking you to step back from this story and question your own heart. Do I believe that in this whole story, the calling of Abraham, the time it took him learning faith and coming to where he said, I trust you, I believe you, do you believe that was God at work? Okay. Well, you're standing in the middle of the Christian church. If you can answer, of course, I, I believe that was. <laughs> Good. Did y'all hear him? He said, I don't even think, it, I not only think it was God, I think it was Jesus who was doing all that. So, very good. Other questions? Thank you so much for coming, and I look forward to being with you next week as well. Thanks.